Before we get started, this episode has some graphic and disturbing content of both a violent and sexual nature, and it starts about 13 minutes in. Pakapong Tanyakan had big dreams for his future. He was this bright kid who really wanted to be an officer in an army here in Thailand. That's Scott Heidler, Al Jazeera's Bangkok correspondent, and he's been following Pakapong's story. He was going through military training, and they said that he died from an enlarged heart condition that led to cardiac arrest. That's what the Thai military said. Pakapong's family doesn't think that's true. His sister, Subicha, when, when I spoke with her, said that he had a physical not long before this happened, and there was no indication of an enlarged heart. I think the Royal Thai Armed Force has to take the responsibility because they are in charge of all the military forces. They have to answer the question of why my brother passed away. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Scott Heidler's been in Thailand for almost eight years, and he covers hard stories like this a lot. There are several to choose from. Student protests in the streets of Bangkok, the downturn in the economy, especially tourism from COVID-19. Thai officials estimate that the flow of tourism dollars will be down 60% this year. And it's conscription season. After the young men are given a basic physical checkup and a review of their paperwork, the rest is up to chance whether they will be called up to serve. And that's why Pakapong's story is on his mind. Tens of thousands of young Thai men are selected for military service through a lottery. And now they're about to head to training. And Scott's been learning they may have more to fear about what lies ahead. But there's a lot he loves about being in Thailand, too. I always like to describe it as controlled chaos. I mean, it's, there's beauty here, some really gritty areas, the crazy traffic. But um, what I really like is the diversity. It is amazingly diverse. And that's one thing I really love about this place. Do you believe in equality? Bangkok's diversity is heralded. Thailand seems to welcome every type of person, male, female, gay, straight, and the many others who fall outside those parameters. The country's put out a tourism campaign based on this virtue alone. If you want to see the true meaning of diversity, it's here in Thailand, the land that will make everyone open. But what Scott found in his reporting is a very important segment of this country that's not as open and still clings to traditions many say should be buried and forgotten. Can you tell me about Pakapong Tanyakan? When did you first learn about him? It was impossible not to hear about Pakapong Tanyakan's case. It was such a big, big, big story here in Thailand and the investigation into his death. He was a, um, a cadet. He was going through military training and he died suddenly. He was 19 years old. It was on every newspaper front page. It was in every news report on the radio and TV. And then that's when I found out about it as well. And then that's when I started to dig into it. Again, this was three years ago. I started to dig into it. It was a bit of a new story for me. A 19-year-old died in military training, and the circumstances were unclear. It caught the attention of the country. 
And when Scott started asking around about what was going on at these cadet training camps and in the military, he started to realize what he was uncovering was an open secret. It was something everyone knew. You know, you look at kind of the way the military is viewed in in the culture here, the way the culture within the military is, you toughen up. And the way you toughen up through training is is abuse. It's been around for a while. It's kind of that... that um, uh, open secret, if you will. The people closest to Pakapung and the people who had been in touch with him while he was training were his family members, his mom, dad, and his sister, Supicha. And Scott wanted to know what they thought happened. So you went to meet his family. What was interesting, we drove up to his family's home. Pakapung grew up in central Chumburi province. It's about a a two-hour drive southeast of, of here in Bangkok. And um, very rural area. We were met by his parents and his sister. And it was obvious straight away that they were, um, they were kind of worked in the agricultural business industry, um, but they were doing fairly well. Um, it was a very simple house, but, you know, they had cars and things. So it was interesting to see that uh, environment, get a little bit of a picture of what it was like for him growing up and a very, very loving family. What was that meeting like for you as a journalist and personally? The most difficult was seeing his mom. Um, she was the most emotional. The mom sat on a bench holding this album that the local kids made for the family with drawings. I think they just did it one day in school. And on the front of it was a picture of, of, of um, Pakapong in his uniform. And she was just kind of touching the picture while this interview was going on. First, thank you very much. This is a very what did the family tell you he was like as a child and what were his aspirations for when he grew up the sister um she was fantastic also in her 20s but very very um mature in her approach to this because you know she's been dealing with this case her brother's case for three years you know, she could, you could see that she's kind of evolved in the way she's been approaching the subject. I'm feeling a little less sad now, but my parents and I still miss my brother every day. I guess that's normal for anyone who's lost a family member. I'm sure it was anger at first, but now it's, it's um, motivation. She wants answers, and she's very resolute in trying to get those answers from the military. If you ask me, as a person who lost a brother, no, I don't think the authority is doing enough. I understand that my case isn't the only case they have to deal with, but at least give us regular updates. We shouldn't have to be the ones who have to chase the information down. Pakapong was clearly very close with his sister because his sister spoke very emotionally about him and about his case. Um, we know that he wanted to be uh, an army officer from a very young age. He actually went to military prep school before he even went into military training. So that's what he wanted to do. And he was very focused on that. After he graduated junior high, he wanted to become a military officer. He's the opposite of me. I'm hot-headed, but my brother was always calm and very optimistic. He was just an ordinary boy, always positive. He was very dedicated, and he really wanted to become an officer. So he volunteered for the military. How typical is that in Thailand? Well, one thing that is almost another controversy 
is the process of um, getting new recruits. It's a, a conscription process every year. It's actually a lottery where um, teenage boys have to go in to uh, a facility within their district and draw a card, either a red card or a black card. Red card means you have to serve two years. Black card means you get a pass. So to get out of that process, some younger boys will uh, opt to do uh, like Friday service while they're in high school or weekend service when they're in college, university. But in a lot of these rural areas, um, and I'm hearing now, particularly because of the massive economic hit from COVID-19, a lot more are volunteering, even before this process of, of the lottery. But that goes back years too. You look at the rural areas um, where agriculture is the business, rice, other agricultural products, they want different options or they don't have much options with the family business, so they go into the military. There have been some cases where I've, I've talked to some, some young boys who are like, look, we've got nothing else here. At least if I join the Navy, if I join the Army, I've got a paycheck and I at least know what I'm going to be doing for the next two years, then I can figure out what's next. So do you know what went wrong in this case, you have someone who's volunteering, deciding not to do the lottery and actually willingly signing up for the military. What happened? They said that he died, Pakapong died from an enlarged heart condition that led to cardiac arrest. The military also said that a short period of time before he died, that he fell down steps. Um, and they have CCTV footage of him falling down the steps being helped up, then he went into the infirmary. They said he had internal bleeding then. What does the family believe? Again, kind of the, the spokesperson for, for the family is, is his sister. She didn't believe that, that um, he would have died suddenly from cardiac arrest. He was a fit kid. He trained outside of the required training. He had talked to his parents about physical abuse. He talked about how he fainted one time from overexertion. They got the body, they retrieved the body, and uh, discovered through their private autopsy that a lot of his major organs were removed. His heart, his lungs, his brain. Through that second autopsy, they discovered that there was evidence of possible abuse. Cracked rib, his spleen and liver were damaged. So that led them kind of conclude to a conclusion that, look, there was something else going on here. So they then filed a complaint and then really went to the media. They demanded an investigation, and, and they got stonewalled by the military. And still to this day, the investigation for this case, you know, we're almost three years after his death, um, it, it's still pending. So can you talk to me about how common cases like this actually are in Thailand? You know, it was kind of this, this um, routine in the military training that they um, use corporal punishment, they, um, it's, you know, borderline, if not torture in some cases for either reprimand or for part of the training. You know, you, you look at back and you even hear from the top levels of, of the military here, top levels of the government, because the government is run by the military, um, that uh, it's part of the process. It's kind of like, you know what, I went through it. I didn't die. So it should be okay. It is interwoven into um, how the military is run. Be a man. This is how you kind of get through the training before you enter the military. You need to go through these steps to be able to take the beatings, to be able to take, you know, standing on your head for an hour in, in really extreme hot temperatures. And that 
leads to deaths. This Amnesty International report, they treated us as toys, um, really delves into specific cases. And they, they, they took a couple of years to do this. Am I looking to you? Look, yes. Okay. Um, when you look at the report, extensive. Scott talked to Amnesty's deputy director of campaigns in Thailand, Ming Yu Ha. She helped publish this report. We interviewed uh, 19 new recruits between November 2016 and July 2019, spread across about nine different provinces and different training cycles. And yet we found consistent patterns, very clear patterns of this physical, mental and sexual abuse. And what they found was systematic abuse that leads to injury and in some cases it's led to death. We've seen the report and want you to hear what the cadets described. We have to warn you, it is very graphic and hard to hear. Hard to imagine, really. It's hard to imagine anyone being tortured like that. And even harder to imagine when they're serving their country. The scale of the problem is quite vast. And yet, despite Amnesty reaching out to many, many people, only a few were able to share their story and all in the condition of anonymity because of this climate um, of reprisal that they uh, are perceiving. We found men to read some of the testimonies from Amnesty's report in English. Again, this does get graphic, but we think it's important to hear these voices to convey what they said happened. There was the physical abuse that Scott had described. A sergeant punished me by ordering me to do some exercises, push-ups, stand-ups. I said I couldn't do it anymore, that I was going to faint. But he told me to go on. I didn't, so he told me to get up and slap me across the face. Scott had mentioned there were cadets forced to stand on their heads. There's this position, the head dip, they were forced into. The men had their head and feet on the hot concrete, and they were bent over in the middle, like a triangle. A head dip on the concrete was the worst thing. We'd be ordered to do it for five minutes, sometimes ten, out in the sun, and our heads would hurt badly. Then there were the beatings. Their first rule was, not in the face or limbs, only on the torso. If you turn off the light, it's very dark. And they used it to beat people up. So many similar accounts. And the sexual abuse. Sometimes we were made to do exercises naked. I personally was beaten this way while naked. It happened a lot. Before going into the shower, several of the men said they were forced to hold each other by the genitals. And walk in this way into the shower area. And forced sex acts. They told us to masturbate into the washing bucket, and that was really bad. Every week we had to do it, so it didn't become better, but it somehow became normalized. For those who were gay or transgendered, the accounts were worse. Gay conscripts were ordered up on the stage to strip naked and dance. He took a conscript and went inside a room to have sex with him. There was a power dynamic. There's no way to say no to them. Whatever they told us, we had to do. We spoke to each other about this. We said, why do we have to face this? When Amnesty International put out this report, 
It was right when the first COVID-19 cases were diagnosed in Thailand. It was the first country outside of China where the virus hit. So this report didn't get a lot of attention at the time. Amnesty is still trying to set up a meeting with the Thai military, but in the meantime, they did get this response. The Air Chief Marshal did respond twice, um, and in one of those letters said that the official policy was to treat new recruits like family members, like friends. So those are positive words, um, and they add to the March 2018 memo that the military released, which did stipulate that one, uh, mistreatment of new recruits would be prohibited. And two, those that did mistreat uh, recruits would be held accountable. So all very positive words, but we haven't seen any concrete action. For the men who experience this hazing, it's not enough. And there are more young men who will be drafted in the future. I asked Scott how they are feeling. It is... It's interesting because every year when this draft happens, there's an explosion of viral videos because you can imagine how stressful that moment is when you draw a red card or you draw a a black card. Kids faint. There have even been some cases where the, the officer who's doing, helping them with the pulling the card or holding the jar where they pull the card from, they hold them up in case they faint. You know, it's a tradition, um, but it's a tradition that opposition parties are trying to get rid of. We just had an election last year and uh, two of the opposition parties, one of which was a new party, more of a a youth based party. They are working on legislation now to get rid of this draft process. They say that, you know, it's not really necessary because there's an insurgency down in the south that is the most kind of, you know, active combat that that the Thai military is engaged in. Thailand's not in an active war. So when you talk about this dread that people have when it comes time for the lottery, what are they dreading? Is it the widespread reports about hazing and and alleged torture? I think the dread, the concern of, of pulling that red card is, yes, it is, I'm sure in the back of their minds, like, you know, I'm going to have to go through this really difficult training. They're forced to do it. It's something that appears to be, particularly with with public sentiment now, it's going to be more difficult to justify moving forward. The Senate is, it it favors the military. The the, the ruling junta that became elected government last year, um, they have the last say when it comes to legislation. So it would really be difficult for legislation to pass, not impossible, but very difficult for legislation to pass reforming this process. So we know that the military is very important in Thailand. It supports the monarchy. With that backing, is it fair to say that it essentially rules the country, that these two things go hand in hand? They're sanctioned to protect the royal family, and that is very important in Thai culture. So when you take on the military, it's a very, very bold step because they are really, in every aspect of life, They are powerful here in Thailand. And now there are protests. Students representing a new generation of Thai protesters are coming out to call for the removal of a government still largely run by military generals who staged a coup in 2014. There are a lot of things these young protesters want to see change with Thailand's military. But one of the things that's been mentioned 
is the draft. The protests we've seen in the last uh, month, it started with high school kids, with university kids. I mean, even one a couple weeks ago was a Harry Potter themed protest. And it's slowly ramped up. And what we saw very recently, 10,000 plus came out to Democracy Monument. You know, they see the future of Thailand, they're like, we want something different. So they've come out to the streets. They've come up with a list of demands, very <laughs> big demands and very challenging demands, like a new constitution, uh, reform within the leadership structures here. As we've been discussing, the military is, is very, very much in control of things here. These are, you know, taboo subjects that really have been broached directly, but they're doing it. What do Pakapong's family want to see? What would justice look like for them? Right now, they would love to get some kind of result, some kind of um, admission from the military that something went wrong. Seeing his mom looking at his picture when we, we were at their house, it's just, it's heartbreaking, you know? And here's, here's this kid. That's what he wanted to do for his life, you know? That's where he wanted his life to go. He wanted to be an officer, and the training to get to that goal killed him. Did his family have any words for other family members, other people who have sons serving in the military? It was, I asked that exact question of, of his uh, sister, Supricha. I said, you know, what would you tell a sister in your exact position whose brother, younger brother, is going into the military? What would you tell that sister? People have to accept that there will be violence inside these camps. It's possible you'll have a family member experience this. What you should do is be sure to have a detailed health checkup if you can. Every time someone dies inside the camp, the officer always says that the death was caused by a prior illness. Family members also should be supportive. They should constantly ask about the well-being of the newly conscripted soldier. I mean, it's, it's a very pragmatic approach. I would say that they would probably avoid any contact or, or any uh, involvement with the military whatsoever. But again, going back to the systems here, for some families, that's just not a possibility. There could be still cases like, like we've seen. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters with Abigail Oniwohacha. Dina Kispe, Priyanka Tilbe, Alexandra Locke, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Our engagement producer is Natalia Aldana, and our executive producer is Stacey Samuel. Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'd like to extend a special thanks this episode to Melissa Goh, Hani Ramzi, Haitham Nasser, Tabish Talib, and Daniel Alvarenia. Let us know what you think of the show, and write us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter or Instagram at AJTheTake and tell us what else you want to hear. We'll be back.